we were in four by four. We went like exactly like they said. And there was this village that was literally lost in time. There was a little boy in flip flops with hitting the stick with a sheep going up the mountain. I have the video and I walk trying to follow this kid up the mountain and I cannot do it. This kid's running up with flip flops. I have like hiking boots. I can barely catch up to him. And it's just 20 families that live in this ancient town. And we had to get the approval of the state and the archaeologist. And we shot there and it became a UNESCO site after. It really was like an ancient untouched village. It was incredible. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a family crisis reunites an estranged mother and daughter in director Maryam Keshavarz's comedic drama, The Persian Version. The film tells the story of Layla, an Iranian-American woman who strives to find balance in her opposing cultures. But when her large family gathers in New York for her father's heart transplant, a family secret is uncovered that catapults Layla and her mother into an exploration of the past. In addition to the Persian version, Keshavarz's other directorial credits include the feature films Viper Club and Circumstance, and episodes of the series Queen Sugar and All Rise. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Keshavarz spoke with director Crystal Moselle about filming the Persian version. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thanks for coming. Um, so sorry I had to spend the evening with my family. <laughs> I had to spend a lifetime, so you guys get two hours with them. Mm, wonderful. <laughs> Very wonderful film. Um, first of all, congrats. It's, you know... It's a perfect Thanksgiving film. It is. It's, it's, it's a film about family. And, you know, I saw it, you know, in the Bay Area when I was with family. I brought my mom and my dad. You came with the whole family. Yeah, and my mom's boyfriend. And it was it was such like a, a joyful experience. Emotional, joyful. You know, I think that there's, you know, you're dealing with some heavy topics. And, uh, you know, I think family always is a heavy topic, <laughs> but you, so a your topic approach of was so wonderful. Like I, like you have such a clear voice as a filmmaker and I'm so excited to talk with you about your path and how this film is made, etc. So it all started. I just wanted to make something. I don't know. I just never, I grew up in New York city. My, I was born in I'm from Brooklyn originally. My family lived in Brooklyn for many years. And I just, growing up, I never felt there was anything that reflected who we were as immigrants. Um, I would latch on to anything that was somewhat similar in watching American like TV and film. I think the closest I ever got was like good times. I felt like my family somehow, <laughs> um, strangely. Uh, so this was kind of my, like the film I always wanted to see when I was growing up. What was like your first step? Like, what was like the first thing? Like, what, like the moment that you're like, oh, maybe I should make this film. Film about my family. Let me yeah. just throw my family up on screen. Um, honestly, it was it was the Trump era, and I, there's a lot of xenophobia, and I felt like I was very depressed. And the only thing that got me through the day was Saturday Night Live. 
Um, and then it was like the Muslim ban and all these different things. And I thought, I think the most radical thing I can do is make a film about my community that's being so vilified. Iranians were like on the Muslim ban and there was all this stuff going on, which is very reminiscent to my childhood when our neighbors, like I grew up in New York, our neighbors would like beat us up after the hostage crisis stuff. So I was like, hmm, this is a good opportunity to bring some joy in the world. Like I wanted to make a film yeah. that could, you could watch and feel like it was your family. So I felt the country was very fractured in a way that, you know, I, what made me so proud always growing up to be American no matter where I traveled was that we were a country of immigrants and that was the American identity. Like you could have your home identity and you could have your new identity. And I wanted to embrace that idea. I thought, well, you know, why does Trump get to say what American, being American is? So I want to reclaim that. And I want to do it with fun and joy. And I really want it to be a comedy. So I was telling a, um, a story. I'm a Creative Capital fellow. So I was at a retreat and I was telling a funny stories about, um, you know, family secrets. And little did I know that it was one of the producers of um, Cinereach was there. And she was laughing. And she was like, you have to make this into a film. And I knew I wanted to make something, a comedy about my community, but I didn't know it would be about my family. Um, and so they kind of stalked me for a year. And they're like, you got to do it. So, and I said, you know, I'll do it as long as it's a, a comedy. Like it has to be right out comedy. And they were like, great. And they were great people to develop it with Carolyn Kaplan and uh, Natalie Difford. And they went through the process of many drafts. And, you know, me finding my voice, because at first it was really about my whole family, and then as I was writing, I realized it's really a story about me and my mother. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to, it ended up that the men were just the chorus to the woman's story. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, and I actually wrote them as a chorus, like yeah. they're always together, they're always in an eight shot, you know, like they're just one big, you know, they each have their own personalities, like give with the actors, we worked a lot to give each person, person a personality, and the different look, um, but they always move as a unit. It's yeah, kind yeah, of a, yeah. jo a running joke. Yeah. Um, I was just with my family. They do run, like they kind of move like a unit. Do you really have that many brothers? Well, it's fictional. In the movie, I have eight. In real life, I have seven. So, because <laughs> I had a brother who wouldn't give me his rights. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to divide you into two. Um, so it hilarious. became eight. But I did grow up with one bathroom. So I really love my own bathroom. Oh, you my know. Gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> so, like in the script writing process, like how did you, because it's, it's such a, like an interesting, um, structure like I think it's, it's a very non-traditional structure you know it's, and it's I so teach writing like, yeah. to me because you know tell, I mean for me like I like to tell like different you know people's stories in one film and I think it's just it's it like has, stories within story I mean my background's in literature and I teach a lot of writing and I mean I knew this can never be a standard structure I knew that it needed to, I knew first of all there was my mother and I story that we had to both be narrators we could break the fourth wall and and I just knew that the heart of the story was this trauma that's handed over from one generation to the next. So I knew I had to start with this idea that we don't like the mother and that we evolve the story and that we realize at the core of this mother is this trauma and that she literally hands off the trauma to her daughter. She says the same words in the third act. So it was important that it, you know, it not be traditional, but it was more about this the the impact of was like where can the impact of that trauma the handing of the trauma be the most successful and I thought it would be like later in the film and there was a lot of back and forth even through the edit process if that was the right thing but 
I was very adamant that it was. And I was very adamant that the mother's story is a film within a film. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, each character has its own genre. As a director, like when I was creating my director's book, I, it's a challenge because it's like I, I knew that the, the daughter had a voice and a style, the grandmother had a voice and a style, and the mother had a voice and a style, and, a, and they were leaning to, from different genres. So the daughter is more pop, like influenced by sitcoms, you know, the grandmother's like a spaghetti western, <laughs> and, and, and the mother is like a neorealist Kiristami film. Yeah. Um, but it, you still have to make it cohesive, right? So it was like this idea of, like, okay, I want that to be different genres and different fields, yet it has to be the same film. So how do we do that? You know, how do we make it feel different but the same? So we, for instance, decided never to use different lensing. We use the same lens for all the different areas. Yeah, yeah. We used, uh, we didn't change any lighting. Yeah. Um, we tried to keep it very consistent through those different, um, those different genres. But we played with genre quite a bit. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, the character is a filmmaker, so I thought how fun that we can, you know, use all of these, you know, tools at our disposal. I and really, just have no boundaries. I was like, you know what, let's screw boundaries. Let's just... I really was about being playful, you know, no, and I, I so, use the genre to so do that. It's so playful, and that's, you know, as you know, my vibe. Of um, course. But I want to point out that when you're talking about your film, you're using the word we, which is very empowering because it's, like, such a group effort. Of course, and yeah. And there's, like, so many, like, assets, you know, and people that help you make a movie. Um, and also it's, like, you know, it's interesting when you make a film – that's also based on real life, but those places don't exist anymore. Yeah. So like my family was from Shiraz in the 1960s. I used to go back and forth all the time. I mean, I can't go now because I'm banned from my first film, but we had so many archival video, you know, a super eights that my grandfather used to send. And even as a kid, I remember going through the old parts of town that my great grandparents lived in, but all of it is gone. It's completely knocked down. It's so modern. So even those places don't exist. Even if I were to go to Iran, I couldn't get them anymore. So yeah. I had to go and find a 1960s Shiraz in location scouting. I had to go find like a village that doesn't exist anymore. I just, and there was very few, some things were very documented, like my Brooklyn Brownstone. They, they literally built it with the exact toys that I had growing up. It was so surreal, the same wallpaper, the same cups. The oh, production wow. designers, I gave them all these photos, and my process is to make a book for each who's department. Who's the production designer on it? It's a Turkish team that were the production it's designers. It's like, so, like, you have, like, a such a point of view with production design. Like, it's like, you know, this, like, fantastical version, you know. It, it was such a, yeah, it's such an interesting like what process. Did, what, like, what did you, like, how did that come about? Because it, it's like a very, like, strong, bold voice in production design. Um, you know, I love period. I, I, my process, both in production design and costume and hair and makeup, is I make a lot of, I'm really into making books. So <laughs> I make, like, extensive, like, 100, 150-page books for each department. And they have like archival, they have inspirations, they have color palettes, and then I give it to them and then they interpret that and they give it back to me with their own interpretation of my book, which is such a great process. Um, but you know, the production designers really created the brownstone I grew up in. I like when I went in and our lawyers also from New York City and we went in there, we just sat down and I kind of like, I had this moment because I hadn't been there for so many years, it was very emotional. 
And then, you know, we actually heightened some things, obviously, from period in terms yeah. of hair and makeup to make it more comedic. Yeah. But, you know, it was such a part of that is locations. And I am obsessive about finding locations. So I knew I did a lot of research. I had been to all the countries in the Middle East. I had shot in Lebanon. I had shot in Iran. I was like, and I had read that there was this ancient town in on the border of Syria and Turkey. Mm-hmm. It's called Mardin. So I went there and it was very similar to old Shiraz, which was very beautiful. But the hardest thing was to find the village that's only had very few photographs, but it had my mother's very detailed description of, mm-hmm. you know, it was a tiny village with lots of livestock and the houses were built in the mountains. They were built into the, and it was so hard to get to the house. And you know, I searched, so this region where we found it is where the earthquake was in Turkey, but in Eastern Turkey, but I went everywhere with a local guide. I took a, one of my, my best friends, a, a gay um, Turkish playwright, and we went to all the villages that they had recommended from the location scout. We couldn't find it. And one day we were at the archaeological museum, and the guy had this um, documentary about local music. And he said, you should watch this. It has all the different little villages that are known for their music. So I was watching this 20-minute doc, and there was a one shot of this village. And I was like, oh, my God. It, it was this kid standing on a roof in a roof, you know, mountaintop. I said, like, where the hell is this village? And he's like, he gave me, he told me the name is uh, uh, Bilali. So we go, we're searching everywhere. No one knows where Bilali is. And then finally the shepherd says, oh, Bilali is the Turkish name. You need the Kurdish name. We were in the Kurdish region of mm-hmm. Turkey. You need to go to Alamni. I said, it was literally like, go to the monastery. There's a cypress tree. Turn left at the cypress tree. Go down the <laughs> steep hill. It looks like you're going to fall off a cliff, but you're not. Just keep going. And then you'll come to this village. And it's true. We were in four by four. We went like exactly like they said. And there was this village that was literally lost in time. There was a little boy in flip flops with hitting the stick with a sheep going up the mountain. I have the video and I'm telling my friend, holy, this is it. And I walk trying to follow this kid up the mountain and I cannot do it. This kid's running up with flip flops. I have like hiking boots. I can barely catch up to him. (laughs) And it's just 20 families that live in this ancient town. And we had to get the approval of the state and the archaeologist. And we shot there and it became a UNESCO site after. It really was like an ancient untouched village. It was incredible. But I, I just love how you like added these like bright colorful palettes palettes onto everything so it's like it was I I mean it's such a part of the concept of you know when after the revolution in Iran there was so many restrictions as to what was allowed and not allowed it went from a very western sort of country to very theocratic country where women had to cover their hair and it it went kind of very backwards and when I was a kid everything became illegal like western music all the nightclubs closed and western music became illegal so literally I used to smuggle tapes like in the movie but I thought it's not like now that we can get digital downloads anywhere in the world you have to physically bring stuff and so I thought it was so symbolic that no matter what the repressiveness of a regime is, that you can't keep out music and art and life and living. And I wanted it to be like when they entered with the music, (laughs) it was Technicolor. So literally I wanted a Technicolor version Mm -hmm. of a Bollywood dance sequence. So it was fun. So let's talk about casting. you know, I think that the casting is very challenging. <laughs> it's, you know, you have to find all the actors at two ages. And so the mother, the woman who plays the mother as an adult 
is an actress who's been struggling for 25 years to get, she's been acting in the US, she came when she was 15, and uh, from Iran to America, and this is her first lead role. Um, Layla, who plays, and then the young version of her, the young version of my mother, is an actual 13-year-old from Iran. So I didn't want to bring someone from America playing that role because I felt, you know, they wouldn't have that innocence. I wanted someone not only from Iran, but very sheltered. And I wanted someone who was actually 13, not a 20-year-old playing 13. So, you know, that was really disarming to me as a director because, you know, I found her. She was incredible. She had ne she's never acted before. Wow. She tells me, you know, you made me... You made me like, you pull me out of school, you make me get married, I have a child that dies, and I've never even kissed a boy, <laughs> you know? But you know, it's, it was very challenging to find that role, and it was disarming to me as a director, because I realized how young my mother was. She really was yes, this 13-year-old yes. kid. Work with a 13-year-old. Yeah, and that was really important for me as a director to work with a child. She was such a, she was a kid. And it, it really brought up a lot of emotions for me as a director, you know, those whole sequences. And then Layla, who plays the version of me, is a comedian. It was like her first big role. And then little Layla is very odd because I was one of those people that you never wanted a party where I'm scoping out your children. <laughs> I was like, okay, I need to find a kid. They're not going to be like a trained actor. They're eight years yeah. old. Yeah. So I was at a Persian New Year's party of this actor <laughs> in Iran, and uh, Iranian actor in America. And I was like, looking at this, I was like that <laughs> creepy person. I'm like, don't worry, I have my own daughter, I swear. Um, but I was like, who is that girl? And you know, she ended up auditioning for the film and she got the role. And then the grandmother, I think, is the best find. She's like an experimental theater actress from San Francisco. Yes, I met her. She's, she's, she's such great. a badass. And yeah. she loved the role because she says, you know, when you're over 50 in film and theater, you're supposed to be dead sexually. And she goes, I love sex. I'm at 70 and I love sex. And I never get to talk about it. So I love it. And that's very much the spirit of my grandmother. So it was great to like assemble these women. And then of course, it's such an ensemble of the men that come from all over the world. Yeah. Um, you know, to find also my father and different ages, but also to find the other woman, the yeah. Roya character was important for me to find someone who's not this villain, right? You like her. Yeah. She's so kind. She's like the mother figure for both of them. So it's, you know, all of these little nuances of casting tell you, you know, where your sympathy should be in some ways. Yeah, and funny. it's, and it was great because I wasn't just making a film about my family. I had an entire cast who was from the diaspora. They lived either in the U.S. or they lived in Canada or Europe or Australia. And they were making their family's immigration story too, you know? And so for them everyone was so invested because they had never seen a film like this. There's never, there's been films about Iranians in America. There's been films obviously about in Iran. There's some of the greatest films are made in Iran, but there's never been a film that bridges the two worlds. And for them, that was so meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, generally, like how has the feedback been within the community? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we had a couple of Iranians at Sundance bawling because they had, literally, people have never seen themselves, rep we've always been represented as terrorists. We've always been represented in a very monolithic way. And it's so easy if you dehumanize people that you can go and bomb them and start wars without any you know, recognition of their humanity. Mm. It, it is very powerful to see yourself represented after living in a country or even being born here. Yeah. You know, my parents have been here for um, almost 50 years. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, 
you know, we say that representation matters, but when then you see people watching themselves for the very first time in this way, it is very moving. Yeah. Let's let's uh, reverse a little bit. Um, I'm very interested in your like editing process and how like you know it's once, a monster. Yeah. Once you like, <laughs> what was what was on the cutting floor? Like how how did how did it go? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting when we were talking to I didn't I didn't work with my normal editor. She wasn't available. Um, you know, first time when I was first interviewing editors, some editors want to put it in chronological order, mm-hmm. and I was just very much against that concept. I knew that that wouldn't be the right thing. So I found this Iranian editor um, in England, and then I've also worked with the comedy editor as the last pass. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of uh, putting together a puzzle. Yeah. Um, and also, what I learned in the edit process was really interesting is that, that in the first version of the film, I didn't have a significant amount of voiceover for Layla, but I knew it was important in the edit process. I do a lot of testing of friends and family. It was important that she has a very clear and distinct voice, like particularly in voiceover, so that when the mother interrupts the story, that interruption becomes very powerful because the narrator changes. So the narrator needed to be extremely present. Yeah. And that was something that we developed in the post-process. We, we did a lot of... She was shooting another series. I would send her... Every day I'd send her a list of things to record because I was just writing and I, I'm very much... When I work, I mean, I do a lot of rehearsals and we do a lot of improv. So I would send her like 10 lines a day to record. I didn't know if they would work. And every day, 10 more lines. So we really recorded hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines before we got to the like 30 lines that are in the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and it's supposed to be funny and playful. So it's a it's um, trial and error. So on on set, like you did improv as well as like the script, like how... I don't really have time for improv on set. So okay, my okay. process is... In the rehearsal process. We shot six-day week, so I only had one day off. Um, and on that one day off, we would do a, we would all go together as a family to have dinner, and, and we would be together. And then at the end, we would, you know, we would dance and joke around, and then we would read the scenes for the week. And then in that, I would have my assistant, and I would say, try this or try that, or, you know, we would make a joke, and we would add the joke in. Um, and and then the ed, the assistant want to help you know then create new pages to be sent out. But then once we got on set, we were just like it was. It's an indie film. We shot in thirty one days, so it was like running gun, running gun. You did, um, did six, <laughs> oh sixteen weeks, thirty one days. Insane. Yeah, it was crazy. I was very tired. Um, but yeah, I think. But through that process, that one day of rehearsal was really important to us and you know like the the character that plays the mother she choreographed all of the the line dances of the wedding because she thought oh this family would have their own line dance um so so they would do that on their day off and then the opening sequence obviously is a choreographer and they did a lot of work together so there was never a day off for sure oh wow what a indie filmmaking (laughs) at its best i know (laughs) but i think that's it we we really solidified as a family because Mm -hmm. every minute we had off we were together Mm -hmm. and so that was a really helpful part of the process and um for the last question tell us about like you know bringing this out in the world like how is sundance like did you (laughs) i was mostly afraid of my mother um so i'm not gonna lie uh, luckily, you know, first my brothers were like, yeah, because I cast people that are better looking than them. So they were really happy. Um, my mom, you know, for all of her life, she said this was a shameful story and we should never talk about it. Yeah. And then she gave me the permission to make it. And 
it was truly something else, I think, for her to experience that with, you know, an audience. And, you know, she had told me, but before I made the film, it's time that we tell our own stories. We break the silence. Now she has seven granddaughters and it's a whole new generation. So, you know, I think her best review was, uh, you did us justice. So that's all we can ask for. And a beautiful note to end on. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.